All right, page 31. And if you need a notebook, we've got some over here. Anybody need? Everybody good? <clears throat> so I didn't greet anyone before we started. I just came straight from my office over here. I'm not greeting anyone after we're done. You can hear it a little bit. So I've got a, a cold. That's uh, that's it. So I want to give it to you guys. Thank you. So if I can get through uh, tonight, I think we'll be good. Always happens when you have a bunch of stuff going on. This morning, I was uh, speaking at the seminary chapel today. Got through it, though. And we'll get through tonight as well. So sorry I wasn't able to talk to anybody. Sorry I won't be able to do so after we're done. But page 31. We've got three sessions left, so tonight and two more, and then we're and then we're done. So the semester's uh, gone fairly quickly, yes. and we've seen what uh, led to the Reformation in 1517. We saw that in the first three sections of the four sections that are part of your notes. We've got a table of contents, so you can hold your finger at page 31, and if you go to the front, you've got a table of contents. Just a, by way of reminder of these first three sections, we had ancient church history starting in 33 AD when the church began to 312, and then ancient church history continued, but starting from 313 to 590, medieval church history, the Middle Ages, 590 to 1517. And now for the last few weeks, we've been looking at modern church history when the Reformation began in 1517 and now up to up to the present. Now this fourth and final section surveys what resulted from the Reformation. The many combinations and permutations and denominations that came out of it can really be uh, very confusing. So tonight, uh, a little bit later, I'm going to provide a shorthand way to help you distinguish and identify the soundness of a group or a church. So you've got this bewildering number of names and denominations and all of that, but I'll just provide for you a filter for just a handful of issues for you to think about as you try to evaluate uh, a particular one of these churches or groups among those many. Now, our last 11 pages then, starting on page 31 and then going through the end to page 41, those are uh, going to show us what uh, has led up to even our own church, CBC, and where it fits into this flow chart and organizational chart that came out of all that developed from the Reformation. We had last week off, so let me remind you some more as to where we've been. We've seen that the Reformers' priorities were the most important issues. Uh, they focused on the things that were most important, which is, is good, and as you would expect, they focused on things like sola fide, the Latin for by faith alone, justification is by faith alone, sola scriptura, that our authority is found, our final authority is found in the scriptures alone, they focused on the priesthood of every believer rather than a category, a separate category of people who were priests through whom you had to go in order to, to get to God. And then uh, there were practices that they reformed that flowed from those priorities. So the priorities were justification by faith alone, scripture alone, priesthood of the believer. And then flowing out of that, they focused on things like the Mass that the Roman Catholic Church uh, taught. And the teaching that the Mass involved the literal uh, death and uh, of, and bleeding of, of Christ, crucifixion of, of Christ. So they focused on the Mass, on indulgences. The sale of these permits in order for people to be uh, short, have their time in purgatory shortened. And then, of course, the papacy. Itself. Now, all of that I have on page 26 in your notes. That's just a, a review of that. So that's what the reformers were focused on. They had these priorities, these big issue priorities, and then the practices that flowed out of those. But some saw that they did not go far enough. So we've looked at the radical reformers. 
And they believed, I think rightly, that there were too many vestiges of the Roman Catholic Church still in uh, what the Reformers practiced. Things like infant baptism, things like their view of communion. You know, I've talked a bit about how Luther viewed communion. He didn't believe in the transubstantiation of the Roman Catholic Church, but he still didn't, uh, couldn't bring himself to believe it was a memorial, a symbol, and so consubstantiation I had a big uh, colloquy and debate with Zwingli about that. We saw that. Likewise, in their view of church and state, they didn't believe it in a separation of church and state. And so in that, none of the reformers did. And we've seen that some of the reformers actually were involved in uh, approving the execution of radical reformers. These radical reformers were called the Anabaptists. Anabaptists means re-baptizers. And they didn't believe that they were re-baptizing, but that's, uh, that was a, a pejorative used against them, that name Anabaptist re-baptizer, because they believed that those who had been baptized as infants had not really been baptized. They believed in believer's baptism, and they influenced what would become the Baptists. And the Baptists and the Radicals, the Anabaptists, agreed on baptism and communion as symbols. They believed on the need for separation of church and state. They agreed in, on believers' baptism. They differed, as we've seen, on pacifism. The Anabaptists were pacifists, uh, would not involve themselves in uh, any military uh, conflict. The Anabaptists, to this day, will not take oaths. And uh, they disagreed about the mode of baptism. Most of the Anabaptists poured rather than rather than immersed. So they agreed on much, uh, the Anabaptists and the Baptists, but they disagreed about about those. And both of them, the Anabaptists and the and the Baptists, were persecuted. They were persecuted because they didn't believe in infant baptism, and infant baptism and citizenship had become so closely aligned. We've seen that as well. So if you denied infant baptism, then you were attacking the very heart of the society by which one really became a, a citizen. Now, Baptists would eventually uh, join the separatists and the Puritans in coming to America from England. So let me remind you of what that is. Baptists came to America from England. We'll see some more of that tonight. But in doing that, they were following, they came shortly after some separatists and Puritans came to America. So who are the separatists? I remind you, they uh, were groups within the Church of England, in England, that uh, had come to believe that the church should be separate from the state, thus separatists. And a bunch of them got on a boat in 1620 and came to America. We just had the, we just had Thanksgiving. Uh, the pilgrims that came over in 1620 were part of the separatist group. Ten years later, in 1630, another group uh, splitting off from the, the Church of England came over called the Puritans. And the difference between the pilgrims and the Puritans is that the one was separatist and the other was not. So the Puritans, Puritans were not concerned about separation of church and state. But they did believe that the Church of England needed to be purified, and thus the name Puritans. There were too many. In fact, I have the quote in your notes. We also saw the same quote on the DVD. They believed that there were too many rags of popery that still existed within the uh, Church of England, so they wanted to, to purify it. So Baptists eventually followed the Separatists, the Pilgrims, the Puritans, in coming to America from England. But meanwhile... The Baptist movement was developing in England. So on page 31, this is where we left off two weeks ago before the break, we were looking at some well-known leaders in England in the Baptist movement, and especially in the particular Baptist movement. Remember, there were particular Baptists and there were general Baptists. Particular Baptists were the Calvinists, that is the good guys, the general the General Baptists were the Arminians, and that is the bad guys. I talked about that several weeks ago. So continuing that list, 
Top of page 31, you have Andrew Fuller. He wrote a tract called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. He founded the Particular Baptist Missionary Society. Again, the Particular Baptists are the, are the Calvinists. Now notice, in doing this, founding a mission society, then he is clearly not a hyper-Calvinist. We talked a couple of weeks ago about what a hyper-Calvinist is. That's someone who doesn't believe in the use of means in order for God to accomplish his ends. William Carey, the guy uh, that we'll look at next, William Carey was told by some hyper-Calvinist mentors when he said he wanted to go to England and evangelize uh, the people there, he was told, young man, if God is going to save the Indian people, he will do it without, without you or me. And so it's a denial, hyper-Calvinism is, of means. Top of page 31, we had asked the question two weeks ago, how does hyper-Calvinism manifest itself? It's that way. It's a denial of means. So you don't need evangelism. You don't need missions. But how does one who believes in the doctrines of grace, that is Calvinism, protect against it? And we said two weeks ago, that is by being vigilant in the use of those means, prayer and evangelism and missions. So Fuller clearly understood that, and he founded a missions society. William Carey was a Calvinist, but also a missionary, pioneer missionary to India. He coined the phrase, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. And then moving forward in time, you have the great Charles Spurgeon. Many of you know that name. Spurgeon in in London, a Baptist. He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That's what it was called. Uh, At one time, it had 15,000 members. So this was a a megachurch before there were all the TV and megachurches. The first one, huh? He's one of the first and maybe the first now that you mention it. Yeah, yeah. And his sermons were published in the newspapers in, in England. And so he was a, a bit of a celebrity in that, in that sense as well. He was a, a Calvinist, he, but he was an, evangel, an evangelist. And he led thousands of people through his preaching to, to Christ. He was asked one time, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, since you believe that it's only those God has chosen that will be saved, then why don't you just preach to them? And he said, you point out who they are, and I will. <laughs> you know. So the idea is, I have no idea who God, God is going to say. My job, he said, is to preach to everybody. And then God does his work through the preaching of the gospel. Now you see there, in the middle of page 31, the downgrade controversy. You need a notebook? There's one right over there. You could? You okay with me pointing you out to everybody? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's one over there. You're good. All right. The downgrade controversy. And what that refers to is uh, something that happened in 1887. And there was a newsletter, newspaper, page 31. There's a newsletter, (laughs) newspaper that that, um, Spurgeon published called The Sword and Trowel. And in it... Uh, he published uh, an article, and then for the next year, every issue of the Sword and Trial, he published something about this, which was his concern about a group that he was part of called the Baptist Union, and his concern about some of those that are in the, were in the Baptist Union, and what it was they were teaching, or uh, in many cases failing to teach about the deity of Christ, about the authority of the Scriptures, about some some very important issues. So he published, uh, he published those articles criticizing that. And he said things like you see in the middle of page 31. I'm unable to sympathize with a man who says that he has no creed because I believe him to be wrong by his own showing. He ought to have a creed. What's equally certain is he has a creed. He must have one even though he repudiates the notion. His very unbelief is, in a sense, a creed. So what is that responding to? Well, Spurgeon was making the case that in order to be in this Baptist union, in order for us to have fellowship together, then we need to agree on certain doctrinal standards. In effect, those doctrinal standards are a creed. The response, and this has been true uh, in Baptist history many times, when doctrinal controversies have come up, people have said things like, no creed but the Bible. Ah, what do you do with that? Sounds right, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. 
So therefore, they're able to wiggle out of being held to any doctrinal any doctrinal standards, and then use the Bible in a malleable kind of way. And so that's what he's referring to. And he also said, "We're going downhill at breakneck speed." He was censured. Uh, the great Charles Spurgeon was censured by the Baptist Union. Uh, so it shows how far the Baptist Union had fallen that they couldn't even follow what should be some very basic things that Spurgeon was espousing. In 1891, the General Baptist joined the Baptist Union, thus uniting the two streams for the first time since their inception. So you got the General Baptist, the particular Baptist, they, they came, became joined in the Baptist Union. You can see why that would uh, be easy for that to happen once they have had this downgrade uh, this downhill uh, slide in their doctrinal standards, well then, uh, now it's easy to unite with people who don't believe the same way you do in doctrine. So that raises a, a question. I have it for you there on page 31. Should one separate from those who have been accepted by Christ? Or to put it another way, should one ever have occasion to separate from somebody who you have reason to believe is actually a Christian? You ever thought about that? No, the question doesn't make any sense to my mind at all. Well, that's because I gave it. You have to, you have to bring it down to my level. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, what I'm asking is, uh, is there ever a time to refuse fellowship with someone who? So when I say separate, refuse fellowship with someone who uh, still you have reason to believe is a Christian, but you refuse fellowship with them for. Some reason. Are there are reasons to do that. You think? Tamara. Okay, so somebody's in open sin. Yeah. Open but unrepentant sin, right? But if somebody is in open and unrepentant sin, somebody over here said church discipline. Yeah, that's what the remedy biblically is: is excommunication, according to the Bible, Matthew chapter eighteen. It's excommunication. But in the case of um, uh, Matthew chapter 18 uh, it's if the person is unrepentant Jesus says treat them as if they are an unbeliever so in that case at least it's not somebody who at that point if you've gotten that far in the process and the person is still unrepentant and you don't know if they're a believer but Jesus says treat them that way but what about somebody you have reason to believe is a believer but they're doing things or teaching things that are problematic. Sir? I guess it depends on what they mean by fellowship. Because okay. Bible study fellowship, <clears throat> I guess I'll use that name. Okay. It has people in it from all kinds of, I should say all kinds of, different interpretations. Things, right? But yeah. we're not all sitting under the same church weekend local body. Yeah. So at that point, yeah, I think we need to be separate as far as our doctrine and clear in our doctrine. But in our commonality, I don't have a problem fellowshipping with someone. So there's different levels of fellowship is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say if you believe in sprinkling versus immersion, that I'm not going to fellowship with you. Yeah. I might choose a church that teaches immersion. Gotcha, yeah. So there might be coffee cup level fellowship. You know, let's go for coffee. We don't hate each other. But there are certain ventures that we couldn't get involved in together at maybe a higher level of co that require a higher level of cooperation. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Somebody else before anybody else have? Yeah. I was going to ask what exactly you meant by fellowship. Yeah, so. Staying in the same local church or. No, well, I just wanted us to think about the issues involved with that, and that's one way to think about it. What do we mean by fellowship? What kind of levels of fellowship are we talking about? Vince? First, first Corinthians chapter 5 talks about any so-called brother who, who uh, don't even associate, don't even eat with such a person that, that is a swindler or a greedy person. Yeah, right. Now, it says so-called brother. Right. Someone who calls himself a brother. Right. So Paul, who wrote that, is now bringing into question whether or not this person is a brother based upon their behavior. 
But here's a passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2 Thessalonians 3, that people don't often reckon with when it comes to this question that I'm asking. 2 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother. Let me just stop there. So here we're not talking about a so-called brother. Keep away from every brother. See you guys later. (laughs) (laughs) Keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. Now, is idle. It's basically somebody who's lazy. And that's 2 Thessalonians 3. If you were to go to 1 Thessalonians which we will do together beginning in January, because my next preaching series is going to be in 1 Thessalonians starting in January. But you'll see in chapter 4 of 1 1 Thessalonians that this was an issue for the church in Thessalonica. Uh, And Paul addresses it in the first letter. And he instructs people not to be idle and to work with their own hands, to earn their own bread, and so on. Uh, now, you had people doing this, apparently doing it for pious reasons. Jesus is returning. Why should I knock myself out? Um, and the Thessalonians, in both letters, First and Second Thessalonians, Paul has to address false teaching that they had gotten about the Lord's return, which was then causing them to uh, do some of these things, like be idle. So now he's writing this second letter. And in the second letter, he's addressing this idleness issue again. So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. They received that teaching in the first letter. And undoubtedly, when Paul was with them, when he founded the church at Thessalonica, he goes on, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Wow. Mm If someone will not work, notice, that can't work, that's different, but will not work, then they shall not eat. Just as an aside, those of you who have family members who sponge off you and will not work, there's there's a Bible verse for you. You do not enable people. Um, My policy has always been with family members that I will always help you move in the right direction. I will never help you go in the wrong direction. So I never enable someone's uh, harmful activity. And then he goes on. We hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of him. Do not associate with him. In order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I see that? So he's very clear here, isn't he, that this person is a brother. But this person is a brother who is treading on dangerous territory. Because they're treading on dangerous territory over something that Paul had clearly commanded. And therefore he's saying, do not associate as a means for the person to see the error of their way. And of course the hope is that they would then change their behavior. So in answer to that question, should one ever separate it from someone who's you have reason to believe has accepted Christ? Second Thessalonians 3 Seems to say that, yes. Well, what do they mean by separate? I mean, if, if the persons around you totally ignore them, or you don't enable them, or both of those things? Yeah, so uh, he says don't eat with the person. Uh, in First Corinthians 5, it's don't eat. And uh, here he says don't associate with the person. So as I understand that, it is, it's not business as usual. 
There's a change in the relationship. If someone is unwilling to do what God has said, then there's a change in the relationship. Now, it's not a severing of the relationship because, as you say, you run into people. It might even be somebody in your family. Now what am I going to do? We've got family obligations as well. So you still have a relationship, but it's an altered relationship. Maybe you used to go out and have and uh, have coffee cup level and have a meal together and just have a good time together. Well, now that's been changed. And not because I hate you, quite the contrary. Because I love you and I want you to see the error of your, of your way. This is one of the remedies that the Bible gives to show someone the error of their way. It's not one that's very popular because it's hard to do. But it is one that's very clearly taught in Scripture. So, uh, no, it's not a complete severing. But it's a change in the relationship. It's an altering of the relationship. It's not business as usual. Yes? Um, so that sounds like it's talking about action. So does that apply to doctrinal error as well? So, in case you so here, there you've got, yeah, it is talking about an action in that instance, or inaction, failing to work. But it's not a doctrine. And yet, if you noticed what I read there, Paul says, this person is not following the teaching that you received from us. So it was teaching about the way you're supposed to behave. So there's this, and that word for teaching is the same word for doctrine. So I've given you the doctrine on how a Christian is supposed to behave, and you're not behaving that way. So it is manifesting itself, this false belief that they have is manifesting itself in behavior but behavior always you hear this, behavior always flows from doctrine so they can't really be they can't really be separated that way so yeah, it would apply to both yes but you're not you're not talking a situation like, my mom's Catholic okay. and <clears throat> Through our healthy debates about the Bible and what it says. Oh, I bet they're healthy. Yes. <laughs> they are. She is actually really. She really walks differently now with the Lord yeah, than good. she ever has. Mm-hmm. She's already. She's told me it's mm-hmm. because of me, because mm-hmm. of my relationship with God, how strong it is, That's and good. what she's seen yeah. through this. So. There, you're not talking about something like that, and there's doctrinal differences, and I and I question her on every one. I'm like, oh, are you afraid to marry? Right. You know, we have those discussions. But yeah. if I would have severed fellowship and yeah. not discussed that, yeah. that changed me. Excellent, yeah, excellent question. Excellent question. So, in your mom's case, I think I might have met your mom once, maybe, but uh, I'm certain that your mom does not know as much of the Bible as you do. Right. Uh, she just hasn't been taught. Right. Right. So, and I and I and I don't mean this sound kindly, but in that sense, then your mom is ignorant of, mm-hmm. and you're trying to explain to her, right? So we're not talking about someone who doesn't know. You definitely want a relationship with someone to explain to them truth. Mm-hmm. You know, Second Thessalonians is someone who definitely knows. Oh, okay. Why? Because Paul told them. He says, you know what I told you when I was with you. And then he's written a first letter about it. Now he's writing a second letter about it. So this is someone who definitely knows. Someone who doesn't know. Yeah, you want that relationship. You want to be able to try to explain it. If that person is teachable, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, because missionaries couldn't even go out in their mission field. Well, but missionaries are going to unreached people. That's That's what I mean. It's not the brother that First Thessalonians was talking about me and someone else, and they've gone off the deep end, or I have. They're not talking about an unsafe person in that particular. In what I read, they're not talking about that's, unsafe. That's what I'm talking exactly. about. Yeah. No, unsafe people. You got it. Yeah, and in fact, the one that Vince alluded to in First Corinthians five, where Paul is saying there, don't even eat with the person who is a swindler and all that stuff. But then he has, I think it's in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 5. He wants to make sure you all know who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the people of this world. He says that. 
I'm not talking about the people of this world. Because in that case, you would have to remove yourself from the world. Yes. Now, so here we're talking, and that's my question. Those who are Christians, those who have been accepted by Christ, this is a person who you have a reason to believe is a Christian, but they're disobeying something that God clearly says. And it can be more than idleness. We're, that's just one example <laughs> being used, right? That's the example there. Right. But in principle now, Yes. Then anything that God has clearly taught that some believer refuses to do, then could be could be fodder for that. So it's uh, there is this idea of separating, altering a relationship for the for the purpose of trying to help one see someone see the error of their way. Second Thessalonians three. But it's hard to do. And it's really hard to do in our culture. Because in order for you to do that, you had to make a judgment. And making a judgment is the worst sin you could possibly commit in our culture. Right? So everybody's... Somebody may not know any verses in the Bible at all. They know this one. (laughs) Judge not that you be not judged. Okay? So if you go to say to somebody, uh, hey, you know, you're doing the wrong thing there. Jesus said, judge not. Okay. And then and then we always we, we always feel we're like, look, I'm not judging. We, we, how many times have you said, oh, I'm not, look, I'm not judging. Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, you are. And that's okay. It's okay if you are judging appropriately. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. But then he goes on to tell you what kind of judgment he's talking about. He's talking about hypocritical judgment. Uh, that's what he's condemning. What's interesting is, you get down to verse 6 of Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before swine. You know, how do you, how do you identify a swine? You've got to make an evaluation, right? You've got to make a judgment about that. So in the very... In that very passage, Jesus doesn't eliminate the idea of all judgment. It's just hypocritical judgment. Further, the same Jesus said in John 7.24, John 7.24, quote, judge righteous judgment. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2.15, 1 Corinthians 2.15, that the spiritual man or woman, the spiritually mature man or woman, judges all things, evaluates all things. So this idea, but that's something that has taken hold in our culture. That you don't, the worst thing you can commit is make a judgment. It's make an evaluation. And now you try to apply something like I read. Yikes. That, that'll that be tough. Somebody have their hand up. Yes, sir. I was just thinking, okay, the Christian college example. I mean, one of my roommates was the Church of the Nazarene. So, I mean, I, we were still in fellowship. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't think we're supposed to split hairs that way, are we? <laughs> well, I mean, you went to Westminster and you probably don't hold to everything that, right. that they held to. I mean, yeah. Might, they, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> no, it's true. So, uh, but it, it, it's a matter of evaluating almost without exception whether or not the person fully understands what they're doing. Uh, and so back to what I said to Tony. <clears throat> You know, so your Nazarene roommate. You know, I don't know your Nazarene roommate. You know, but how much does your Nazarene? Do you remember how much they knew about what they were doing and what your differences were? Well, you know? back then, Campus Crusader, someone had I found it bumper sticker. So we always tell them we were going to get him one. Said I found it, I lost it. <laughs> so because he could lose the salvation, yeah. right? So, yeah, yeah. See, but so my experience with my Pentecostal upbringing. You can lose your salvation. Speaking in tongues is a language that nobody understands, including the person speaking it. If you were here with us Sunday morning, the second hour, I talked about that. But we also were taught, I was taught as a kid, you can lose your salvation. You can find it and then lose it, like you're talking about. Uh, But my experience was, and to this day, my Pentecostal friends don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I'm sorry, but they don't. And I've got Pentecostal friends. But I've got those friends because they don't know what they're talking about. 
Uh, now, if if you know, if they have Paul before them like the Thessalonians do, and they're absolutely clear on something, but they're just rejecting it, then that's a different that's a different deal. So, I'll wrap up this discussion this way. There's an inverse relationship between clarity and dogmatism. Is that good for everybody? I'll just move on. <laughs> so, the the less clarity you have, the less dogma, dogmatic you can be about it. The less clear something is, the less dogmatic you can be about it. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear, is it? I mean, that Jesus is God, that's clear. That Christ rose from the dead, that's clear. That he's coming back, that's clear. There are a bunch of things that are clear. Then there are other things that are, that are less clear in the Bible. Um, you know, is there going to be a rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation? Now, I believe there is. I've got good reasons for believing that. But you've got to jump through some hoops, some theological hoops, to get to it. So it's not as clear as Jesus being God, Jesus raising from the dead. So therefore, I cut slack on that. I disagree with people, but I cut slack on that. Now, you know, on that clarity scale, and there's subjectivity to deciding what's clear and what's not, but on the clarity scale, that you can not lose your salvation, that you are eternally secure when you become a Christian. Now, that's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. Now, I just put the pretty clear in there. Because there are some passages that I've told you about, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, that when you read it, it looks like somebody who was saved and then wasn't saved. Now, that's not what it's teaching. But at first glance, that looks like what it's teaching. So you have to harmonize that with the rest of Scripture. So you'll cut some slack on that and that as well. So my standard in trying to apply all this is that the relationship between dogma and clarity is the less clear something is, the less dogmatic you can be about it. And uh, if something is clearly taught and someone clearly knows it and they're disobeying it, now you're going to have to invoke 2 Thessalonians 3. Okay, I just want you guys to think about that whole issue because we're in such a muddled state in evangelicalism where we've been bludgeoned with don't judge anybody, don't evaluate anything, that a lot of people don't even know 2 Thessalonians 3 is in the Bible. And you read something like that, and Paul says, you know, keep away from this person, but treat them as a brother. And they go, what? How could you do that? All right. So how does, next question here, how does your answer to that affect your view of communion? So you've got differences of doctrine, Communion, the, the very word means fellowship, koinonia. So who can participate in communion? Should it be closed communion? <clears throat> closed communion means only those who are members of your church participate in communion. So we had communion a week ago Sunday, and the idea in a closed communion service would be, I would get up and say, if you're not a member of our church, don't participate. That's what closed is. Um, close communion is you don't have to be a member of our church, but you've got to be a member of a church like ours. That's what closed communion is. And then open communion is, is that you've got to be a believer. Um, and then, all right, so th- those what that's what they are. I'll remind you as to what I say. When we have communion, I don't know if anybody remembers, but uh, any thoughts on that? I think it should be open, okay. and I also think that like uh, how you do our communion is the right way to do it by saying the uh, reading the scriptures that if you're not if you know in your heart that it's not right, you shouldn't be taking it. Mm-hmm. Leave your gift and yeah. go and take care of your problems. And yeah. you know, but no, I think it should be open. Yeah. So we've got kind of a uh, the way we do it is kind of I say there's three here and then you know we got like an open plus <laughs> approach 
it's not completely open. It's not just, I don't just get up and say, if you're a believer, then participate. I say, you've got to be a believer. And the Bible says, examine yourself. And if you've got open and unconfessed sin, you should. that's, that's participating, 1 Corinthians 11, in an unworthy manner. And then I talk about what some of those sins might be. You might have an issue with another brother or sister that you refuse to get straight. Jesus spoke to that. Get that right. Leave your gift at the altar. Then get it right. Then come back and worship. So that's what you're talking about. And further, I, I address the issue of baptism. And Christ commands you to be baptized. If you say, I'm not going to do that, well, then that's something that you need to something you need to deal with. So you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do need to follow these clear commands of, of Scripture. <clears throat> Tony, is that what you're yeah, going to say? Yeah, because no. you're really clear on that. Before we take yeah. communion, you say you need to be a believer, you need to be you yeah. know, baptized, you need yeah. to not have anything. You go through all that every time we have communion. Yeah. So there might be people in attendance then who are not, they're not a member of our church and they're not a member of even a church exactly like ours. They might be a member of a Pentecostal church. But they've been baptized. They don't have this barrier, and so the way we do it is in, in inviting them to, to participate as a brother or sister. All right. Just stuff for you to think about. So here are Baptist doctrinal distinctives. Um, believer's baptism. So that is, though only those who have the capacity to believe are candidates to be baptized. So, here's this question. Is the mode of baptism, that is the way we do it, whether pouring or immersing, is that as important as the subject of baptism? Who is baptized? So, there's the way we baptize, how you're baptized, and who is baptized. Which of those is most important, do you think? Who? Who is baptized? Yeah. Yeah. You guys are all looking at me pretty tentatively. Like, is that right? <laughs> oh, really? No, because you said if, if you would baptize someone was pouring, if that's all that was available. So it's who. Yeah, it is. So I, I agree with that. Julie is saying it's who is baptized, and is this person a believer? Yes. Rather than how they're baptized. Uh, no, the scriptural approach is they're immersed. But you said I would, what you're referring to is I read from the Didache, which is a second century document, and that's right. the way early Christians did that. They immersed, but if they didn't have any water, if they didn't have any uh, a place, a river or something to do that, then they would pour. So that was the practice of the early church. And yeah, if I were in that situation, I'd do the same thing. Someone's a believer, but I don't have any way to uh, to baptize, immerse them. Well, then you'd have to do plan B. Mm-hmm. But it'd be clearly labeled as plan B. Yeah. Right. All right. Then there's baptism. There's believer's baptism. Baptism by immersion. Autonomy of the church. Autonomy means self-governing. So the church is self-governing. That's a one of the Baptist distinctives. But the church is, governs itself. It doesn't have a hierarchy, a denomination. That's sometimes called congregationalism. And those that approach, congregationalism, or the autonomy of the church, top of page 32, is contra the monarchical view, the Episcopalian view, the Presbyterian view. Monarchical, a monarch, that would be the papacy. You have someone who dictates... The Episcopalian view is uh, that you have a division, a hierarchy still, and you have a division between the uh, the episkopases. Uh, that's the Greek word episkopos, which is translated bishop or overseer. So Episcopalian is you've got pastors, but above the pastors you have the overseers slash bishops. That's what an Episcopalian form is. Now, this congregational form, again, doesn't have anybody above the pastor, doesn't have anybody above the church. The congregational form of government, the highest church office, is that of pastor. 
And there is no separate office higher than that. There's no bishop. There's no overseer, any of that. Now, why is that? We saw that several weeks ago in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28. Acts 20, 17 and 28. That verse, those two verses, Paul uses the terms elder, overseer, and pastor. In those two verses, referring to the same people. So these same people are all of those. So those terms are not different offices. They're just different titles for the same, the same person. Likewise, in First Peter, First Peter, chapter five, First Peter five, one through four, Peter does the exact same thing. Uses all three terms of overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd of the exact same people. So these are not separate offices. And then there's contra the Presbyterian view. The Presbyterian uh, approach is you have presbyters, elders, that's presbyteros, it's a Greek word translated elder in your New Testament. So this would be the elder view. The church is run by elders. So the church is run by elders in within the church, but, and that's all good, the church is run by elders in our church in a sense too. Right, we've got three pastors, elders, overseers in our church now. Uh, but in the Presbyterian view, you don't just have the elders within the church, you have elders outside of the church. You have a general assembly of presbyters that are then a hierarchy over the church. So it's only the congregational approach that has the church being autonomous, self-governing. You don't have anybody above the church. Now, on page 31, I've got those three things about Baptist distinctives. Believer's baptism, baptism by immersion, and autonomy of the church. And actually, there's been this acrostic. We actually have it in our Newcomer's Orientation Notebook that takes the word Baptists and then uses that as an acrostic for uh, these Baptist distinctives, <clears throat> biblical authority, autonomy of the local church, priesthood of the, the believer, two church offices, uh, individual soul liberty, uh, separation of church and state is another one, two, uh, two uh, church offices, two ordinances, communion and baptism, and then the final S is, S is a saved church membership as well. So you take all of those together. Those are all of the Baptist distinctives. Now, Baptists are not the only ones who believe any of those. But Baptists are the only ones who believe all of those. There are lots of people who believe some of those. But it's distinctive in that the Baptists believe all of those. All right. So, with all of that, here's a question. What is the unique contribution of the Baptists to the restoration of New Testament Christianity? So you've got the Reformation. We've seen how that you know, happened. We've seen now what's flowed from the Reformation, the Radical Reformation, Anabaptists. What is the unique, unique contribution of Baptists to the restoration of uh, New Testament Christianity? Well, it's not believer's baptism, is it? Because who else does that? The Anabaptists did that before the Baptists did. I mean, that was their big thing. The Anabaptists said, you have to be a believer to be baptized. It's not autonomy of the of the church. Baptists are not the only ones who are not that. But what was the unique contribution that Baptists brought to the, the fore? It's the mode of baptism. It's immersion. That's the, that's the thing that distinguished Baptists from Anabaptists. That's the thing that distinguished Baptists from pretty much everybody else. Was their insistence upon baptism being by immersion. Alright, then you have Baptist doctrinal confessions. As has been noted, Baptists owe a great debt to the Reformers. Baptists accepted their, take the M out of there, their biblical reforms and they embellished them further. Likewise, Baptists owe a debt to all the Orthodox who have preceded them, dating back to the second century. Baptists fully accept the doctrinal confessions of the first centuries of the church. However, just as these creeds sought to clarify orthodoxy over against error, 
So the distinctive Baptist creed sought to set Baptist belief apart from erroneous contemporary teachings. And so you've got a bunch of these Baptist creeds. The London Confession of 1644. Church History Magazine says the Calvinist Confession of the Particular Baptist had several distinctive emphases. Baptism was the door into church fellowship and should only be administered to persons who profess faith in Christ. The ministry was placed firmly in the immediate control of members of the covenant Christian community. In political matters, the king and the parliament, freely chosen by the kingdom, had legitimate powers, but there should be no state interference in church matters. The mutual cooperation of all churches was stressed, particularly as this related to church planting, financial assistance, and resolution of controversial matters within a local church. So that's the London Confession of 1644. Second London Confession of 1689, an absolutely marvelous confession of faith. Uh, deep, long. You can you can Google that. And if you Google that, it's got I forget how many articles in it, and you read it, and it's it's fascinating. It's amazing. Quite good. Overall, there's only one thing in it that I can recall disagreeing with, and they still had Sunday as the Sabbath, and so they refer to Sunday as the Sabbath. Sunday's not the Sabbath. Uh, but outside of that, it's a great thing. It's modeled, is the Second London Confession, it's modeled after the Westminster Confession of Faith, which uh, had been uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646. If you look at the doctrine of salvation in both of those, they're identical. So the Baptist Statement of Faith and what is the Presbyterian standard confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, they're exactly the same on the issues of salvation. Philadelphia Confession is the second London Confession printed in America. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's the second London Confession just printed over here um, in America. Printed, by the way, the second London Confession was printed by a printer in Philadelphia named Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. Then there's the New Hampshire Confession, another marvelous confession of 1833. We've talked already briefly about needing any other creed except the Bible because there are people who say then when controversy arises and they're questioned about what they believe, no creed but the Bible. Uh, but I've given you my answer, I think, that I think that a creed that says what you believe the Bible teaches is a necessary thing. And anyone who's unwilling to say and state what they believe the Bible teaches uh, is not being is not being truthful and not being helpful to God's to God's people. This is a trend now in our churches today to have doctrine, doctrinal statements on websites that don't say anything. They don't actually tell people what you believe. You'd be amazed how many people that I get looking on the internet for a church, they find our church, and they're thankful that we have a statement of faith that says what we believe. And they go, I can't tell you how many places I go to, you can't find what this church believes. If you find a statement of faith, it's, you know, we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Bible. Well, yeah, thanks for that. Okay. All right, page 33. So that's England... Baptists then in England, but those Baptists come to America. Having traced the development of a distinct Baptist identity in England, we now turn to the establishment of Baptist thought in America. Early American Baptist leaders. Roger Williams. He was born in England, graduated from Cambridge, ordained as an Anglican, but he soon adopted separatist convictions. Now, what do we mean when we say separatist convictions in this context? That the church should be separate from the state. This would be the pilgrims, the separatists who came over in 1620. He adopted their their views on that. He fled ecclesiastical and government persecution, arriving in Massachusetts in 1631. Now, remember, the pilgrims came in 1620. The Puritans came in 1630. He's coming one year after the the Puritans came. And he fled ecclesiastical, that means church. So church persecution, and then government persecution. 
And he was so strong in his separatist convictions that the church should be separate from the state that he refused a position at a Boston Puritan church because I durst not officiate to an unseparated people. As upon examination and conference, I found them to, to be. Now, did you all know, I'll just remind you of this, that in the uh, colonies, that most of the colonies had an official state church? So on the one hand, they they've come over, the pilgrims have come over, the Puritans have come over, there's persecution by the state church. But then when you get over, you establish your own state church within the state. So most of them were either Episcopalian, the official church of the state was the Episcopalian church or the congregational church. That's what most of the states were. And Roger Williams and the Baptists didn't believe there should be a state church at all. And he was persecuted as a result of that. In 16, number seven there, in 1633, he assumed a position at a Salem Puritan church and there began voicing his criticisms of the Puritan establishment. He said, among other things, the Massachusetts government should not punish offenders of the first four commandments. Love the Lord your God, um, excuse me, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You should not bow down before any graven image. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the government punished violations of that. He was saying the church, or excuse me, the government shouldn't be involved in that. He was banished from Massachusetts. He fled to Providence, Providence, Rhode Island, where he established a settlement in 1636 and a church in 1638. Historian William Warren Sweet refers to Rhode Island as the first civil government in the world to achieve complete religious liberty. And he carried on a war of words with Boston pastor John Cotton, a Congregationalist, not a separatist, believed in the fusion of separation of church and state. Then you have a man named John Clark, also in uh, Rhode Island. If you turn to the next page, Obadiah Holmes, active in the Newport, Rhode Island church and was one of its pastors. He was flogged for his staunch belief that the church should be separate from the state. He was publicly flogged and injured greatly through that. Henry Dunster became the president of Harvard in 1640. He was a Baptist. Now, Harvard was established as a Congregationalist school. Congregationalist. But Dunster, a Baptist, became uh, its president, one of its presidents. But because of his denial of paedo-baptism, that is infant baptism, and his public protest against it, the general court and overseers of the college told him to resign. He was later tried again for refusing to have his infant daughter baptized. John Miles founded the first particular Baptist church in Wales, but due to persecution came to Massachusetts. Formed the first Baptist church in Massachusetts in 1663, was fined for breach of order, but allowed to relocate the church near the border of Rhode Island. So Rhode Island becomes this haven for Baptists. And he's allowed to relocate his church as long as it's as far away from us as... So on the border of uh, Rhode Island. In fact, Massachusetts granted a tract of land for a town which the Baptists named Swansea. In 1673, the town built a school of which he was the, the master. In Rhode Island, in Pro... In Providence, Rhode Island, the Baptists established a school. The Congregationalists had two schools, Harvard and Yale, in Massachusetts. The Episcopalians had the College of William and Mary, and the Baptists had no school. So in Providence, Rhode Island, they established the College of Rhode Island, which today is known as Brown University, located in, in Providence. But that was a started as a Baptist school. You've got the Baptists in the middle colonies, and you, Dave, said we're not going to get through these notes, but I'm not going to spend as much time as I did on those first couple pages. You can see I'm going through it fairly quickly. But uh, we've got two weeks, and we will get through to page 41. We'll pick it up there next week, okay? I'm not talking to any of you after because I've got this cold, okay? Any of you that need to leave, you can do that, but yes. Dunster, he was a Baptist. Yes. I thought Baptists believed in believers' baptism already. 
uh-huh. by then. Yes, true. So why was he forced to resign and tried again and again for going Believers. up against infant baptism when that is what they believed? They, Harvard didn't believe that. Oh, Harvard. Harvard was a, it was Harvard who did this. Okay. Harvard was a congregational school. Okay. And the Congregationalists believed in infant baptism. Okay. Yeah. Now they're an atheist school. <laughs> now they're you know now they're nothing. Yeah, right. Okay. But 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 so was Brown University for that matter. And that started as a Baptist school. So, all right. Thanks.